Hi, and welcome back to Plantopia. Plantopia is the plant health podcast of the American Phytopathological Society. And I'm your host, Jim Bradine. I'm a professor of plant pathology and associate vice president at Colorado State University. And today it's my privilege to have a conversation with Professor Fabina Matthew. And Fabina is joining us from Fargo, North Dakota. Uh, she earned her bachelor degree in biotechnology and biochemical engineering from the Indian Institute of Technology. And she earned her master's and her PhD degrees, both in plant pathology from North Dakota State University. She also holds a graduate certificate in statistics from NDSU. And prior to pursuing her PhD, Fabina worked at NDSU as an academic advisor and lecturer and as an extension research specialist. In 2014, Fabina joined the faculty of the Department of Agronomy, Horticulture, and Plant Science at South Dakota State University, and she was promoted to associate professor in 2020. Last year, in 2022, Fabina joined the faculty of plant pathology at North Dakota State University, where she holds the rank of associate professor and broadleaf oilseed crop pathologist. Fabina is known for her disease biology and management research in a variety of crops, uh, especially soybean and sunflower. And she and her colleagues publish widely in well-respected journals. Fabina's research is also supported by national, regional, state, and commodity funding, including recent grants from the USDA, the United Soybean Board, the National Sunflower Association, and the South Dakota Oilseed Council. And Fabina is a frequent invited speaker for international and national conferences. And she and her colleagues are very active participants in Plant Health, which is the annual meeting of the American Phytopathological Society. Throughout her career, Fabina has been a passionate mentor for students, postdocs, and visiting scientists. And to date, she has mentored 15 undergraduate students, 12 graduate students for postdocs, and visiting scientists from Egypt and Serbia. And Fabina is very quick to highlight the many accomplishments of her graduate students, including uh, numerous awards and scholarships. Fabina is also actively involved in service to her institution and her profession. Currently, she serves as a member of the APS Early Career Professionals Committee, the Epidemiology Committee, and the Soil Microbiology and Root Diseases Committee of the American Phytopathological Society. She is also the Secretary Treasurer of the APS North Central Division. She serves as section editor for the Diseases of Fabaceae section of the Handbook of Vegetable Diseases, which is coming out from Springer Press. And since 2018, she has served as a Disease Notes assigning editor for the journal Plant Disease. Fabina has earned numerous awards throughout her career, including the APS Scrofe Faces of the Future Award in 2017, the Early Career Award from the APS North Central Division in 2021, and also in 2021, uh, she and her colleagues earned the North Central Regional Multi-State Research Award for NCERA-137 Soybean Diseases. Babina is especially passionate about outreach to women and underrepresented groups in our profession, and in recent weeks was awarded a faculty fellowship for broadening participation from NDSU. You can follow Fabina on LinkedIn, and on Twitter, uh, she's at Fabina underscore M. Fabina, welcome to Plantopia, and thank you for being here. Thank you, Jim. That was a wonderful introduction. Thank you so much for having me. We're delighted to have you here. And I want to kick off today by learning a little bit about you. Tell us about your, your background and how you found and, and got into the field of plant pathology. 
I was born and raised in Middle East, specifically in uh, Dubai, in the United Arab Emirates. Um, so I was I completed my high school, moved to India for my undergraduate studies in uh, biotechnology and biochemical engineering. At the time I was pursuing my undergraduate studies, biotechnology was really a blooming field, especially in India. We had exposure to different disciplines like pharmaceutical sciences, biochemistry, bioengineering, agricultural biotechnology, and so on. So it was one of my, I had a senior year project in my final year of my undergrad education, which was on plant and tissue culture. So my then mentor talked to me about uh, the uses of where um, tissue culture can help with precise propagation. There's also, you know, there's something outside that whole propagation and trying to increase productivity because there's always challenges when we do those kind of techniques. And so that's where the diseases came in. And the crop that I was working on at that time was sandalwood, which is kind of exclusively used for making cosmetics uh, and, and so on. So he talked me into the field, asked me to do a little bit of homework uh, through internet um, and see if that is something that was going to appeal to me. So in India, unfortunately, we don't necessarily have a plant pathology department in all the agricultural universities. There are very few that is offering. So it seems like the opportunities were much more outside the U.S., uh, outside India. And so U.S. was one of my destinations. I did look at universities. North Dakota State had a fabulous program in pathology. But I remember the day when I, uh, you know, we sent the, as I, I had already applied. I got a, a scholarship letter, invitation letter from NDS, and I had no idea where Fargo was on the map. And so I, um, we were booking our tickets. So it was me and my dad. So we booked our ticket. Then we asked the agent, can you tell us where exactly Fargo is? Is it quite Canada or is it US? Because of that. so many questions. But if we, and all that the travelers he knew is that somewhere near Chicago and that was it. But we didn't know exactly what direction to go. So so that that was one. And uh, the day I went to get my US visa, the consular officer even asked me if I knew where Fargo was on the map. And he said, he gave me my visa and he said, you should probably watch the movie Fargo to know where exactly you're going. And so when I came to Fargo, it, the consular was right. It was more of a weather shock because it was peak winter as opposed to culture at the time. And so I came here and began my plant pathology journey in the peak winter when there was absolutely no crops to look at. But came summer is when um, I began to look at a lot of the oilseed crops at the time when I was doing masters under Dr. Uh, Louis Dendrio. So we were looking at dried old beans and canola. He showed me what the diseases looked like. And then it kind of sparked my influence as to uh, what actually, what causes these diseases and how can it be a challenge in a power field and what we can do about it. So that then following masters, it led me to working under uh, Carl Bradley briefly and then Sam Mark Hill, who eventually became my PhD mentor. And we started looking a little outside the box. It was not just a research, but also communicating with the farmers to know what exactly their problem is and how we as plant pathologists could potentially play a role in solving their problems. So that's what led to my PhD eventually in plant pathology. So I focused mostly on soybean and sunflower diseases while I was at NDSU. And then that led me to South Dakota State. But again, oil seed production is really good. I mean, corn is number one crop, but then there's soybean and front balls too, and I continued my career. And so today I am here 
you know, I know plant pathology fairly well. And I think the most interesting aspect for me when it comes to this field is having a fair knowledge of the practical side of it. I mean, knowing something outside the classroom means a lot to me when it comes to this particular field. So it's like I feel I'm very close to nature. When I'm out there, even just walking through the field or something. So, so that kind of is a nutshell into how I actually made it. I went up to something that I was passionate about as opposed to something that I was thrown in for an option. Thank you so much. That, that passion really comes through. And, and what an incredible story that really spans the globe. I think you mentioned a, a moment ago uh, before we started recording that you've spent most of your life now in the Dakotas, North and South Dakota. So yes. it must feel like home at this point. Yes, it is. Uh, it is home. You know, I, I just think Dakota is a way unique when it comes to culture. I've traveled in more than 20 states in the U.S., but Dakotas have a culture that is fairly unique. Besides the weather, that is. People are really nice, and it really helped me grow professionally. And it was not uh, staying with one or two crops. I was able to work on a diversity of crops as a result of their production. And it was fairly easy to reach out to farmers and Although I don't, I'm not from this culture, I was always welcomed in meetings and wherever I went with a lot of respect. And the fact that, okay, you have spent your life or you've come from a different country and yet you're helping us out. There was something that really touched my heart and I, you know, maybe chose to stay in the Dakotas longer than I actually thought. And you've mentioned a couple times farmers and the importance of practical research. Is it fair to say that that's really a key motivator in your, your research? Yeah, so I would 100% agree with that. My forefathers are farmers in India. Um, and, you know, there are, every year we would, and they grew mostly rice, tapioca, we've had rubber trees. It's a different kind of crops that we see compared to North Dakota or South Dakota. There's not that many uh, rubber trees in North Dakota? No. But <laughs> so, pine trees and Christmas trees that I see people decorating, I guess, over the winters. But, uh, you don't get to see rubber trees at all in the United States. Perhaps it's mostly confined to India, Malaysia, you know. But every year, even though I'm in India, my parents would be sending pictures asking, do you know what this would be for disease and what we could do about it. And so, as much as India has granted, literally they've got a lot of research going. But having come from a farming background, and well, I have seen my grandparents talking about how disease design sick best can have compromised their production. I saw the need to be able to solve the problem because it is connected to our livelihood. That's number one. Then comes the economy of the state, the country, and you know, then eventually global economy. But uh, trying to help somebody to their problem is always something I always enjoyed doing. So maybe grab pathology became an excuse for that, but uh, that that's how I see it. So they are my key motivators. When they done our job right, the research is working, and they call us and say okay, this is working, Vina. So it means though. So like, okay, I've done my job right. So we, yes, I, I think farmers and stakeholders that will be motivated me when it comes to my research. It's great. And I, I often think of plant pathology as a, a truly international science and in a way that not all disciplines are. Um, of course, we all eat, <laughs> we all grow crops and disease, insect, uh, environmental stresses are commonality, uh, regardless of the crop or, or the, the culture. You've obviously worked a lot on soybean and sunflower, um, and you've mentioned several other crops that you've worked on. When I think about those production systems, even if we're only talking about soybean or sunflower, there are a lot of disease challenges. 
Could you talk us through your thought process when you're faced with a, a broad menu of things you could work on? How do you make decisions and, and what research problems are really worth your time and expertise? That's a good question, Jim. So when I began my career at South Dakota State, that was a question I had in my mind. I was um, in charge of the oilseed crops. About 12 crops was what I was working on at that point. And soybean sunflowers and corn had importance at the time. But thinking, okay, I don't know how many problems I can actually solve for the farmers because diseases, it's not one disease in a field. It's like you have a multitude of diseases happening perhaps at the same time, driven by mostly same environmental conditions, different organisms. It could be a fungus and bacteria co-infecting. And so how I decided to then go about positioning my program was to be able to address immediate stakeholder priorities when it comes to diseases. So for instance, if it is soybean, it was sudden death syndrome was just newly identified in South Dakota and it became an emerging threat. We know it is an important disease in other soybean producing states in the U.S., but in Dakotas, it was fairly new. None of the varieties at the time had any tolerance to the causal organism, which is Bidarian Wilbur-Farmay. And so we saw the need to be able to explore the use of seed treatments as an option to manage sudden death syndrome, in addition to also being able to screen the John and for resistance to the pitarium. With sunflower, the story was very similar. Uh, for my PhD, we did Bromopsis tenkinga, which is a which is a major limiting disease in sunflowers. Um, the problem was pretty much in Minnesota, North Dakota, but the year I started in South Dakota, we had a disease epidemic. And then that triggered uh, my research program to be, again, looking at management solutions. So but for the disease priorities, whatever I had chosen, I pretty much chose to go alongside of what the stakeholders were expecting. But having said that, I've also picked up diseases that may not be a priority to the Dakota. So that would be like the diapertate from opposite species infecting soybeans. But I do know that it is the major problem in the southern United States, for example, and I took up some of that research program to be able to understand the organism better as to there is a lot of questions as to why we have not been able to identify an effective fungicide against these species or why is it that the germ doesn't seem to have a good parental material that has resistance. Although these organisms have been reported in 1940 and we're already in like about, you know, 60 years, 70, 80 years ahead and we still don't know why there has, there's no solutions in play. So I decided to take up some of those organisms just because after the interest I have in sunflowers, I decided to continue that into soybeans as well. And so I placed it between immediate priorities versus something that the Dakotas also could be at risk in years to come. So that's how I'm trying, I'm balancing between the organisms at this time. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, very logical, and I think that's uh, very helpful to, to all of us. As we're thinking about the uh, many challenges, opportunities that that we all face in this field of plant pathology, in 2017, you were one of the recipients of the APS uh, Growth Faces of the Future Award. For the benefit of our listeners, let me explain that this award annually recognizes uh, four early career professionals who share their research perspectives and prognosticate on where our field is going as part of an annual symposium. And in 2017, this competition focused on host-resistant and host-pathogen interactions. So, Fabina, that was uh, six years ago, 2017, that you were part of the symposium. 
thinking back, do you recall what you saw as big trends in the area of plant pathology and how has your perspective changed or stayed the same over that period of time? The topic that I presented as part of the award was on diaprothecomopsis infecting some flowers. At the time I finished my PhD, we screened several breeding lines at the time that was almost available to the farmers for resistance to these organisms, but we couldn't find anything that had resistance to multiple species. But uh, this was an early project that I took up at South Dakota State to again go back to the fentanyl materials, which we call the USDA cultivated sunflower germ platform, and check to see if they were they were resistant otherwise. And interestingly, we found resistance in the limes that was released in 1970 by the USDA ARS unit here in Fargo, North Dakota. So that was a big breakthrough because the material that we identified resistance had resistance to not one species, but two species, and diapolpicolea. And the material all of a sudden became a big hit in the market. Like there were breeders, international breeders also wanting to get received from the USDA collection in Ames pertaining to this particular variety. So at the time when I wrote the presenting the research, the, the, the very finding that, okay, we have a resistant material in hand was a big breakthrough. The next step, obviously, was to be able to identify candidate genes that may be present in this particular material, but this is why we are calling it to be resistant. That became a little bit of a challenge because, like, we have techniques set up to identify and validate candidate genes, like in crops such as soybeans or wheat or adoptopsis. We are not quite set up for that in sunflowers. So that became more of a futuristic idea. Now, how do I transform sunflowers in such a way that I could be validating the genes that I identified as resistant? So an idea was fleshed out at the time of the symposium, and it's an idea that we're still trying to work on with the breeders to see, okay, how can we make this happen so that we know this particular gene is the golden gene that one would need to deploy in commercial hybrid to protect it against the masters. So that's what we're currently working on. At the time I proposed it, I didn't know if it was going to work, but I think we're still working on it and seems like we're gaining some momentum. At least we got the material in hand and so that was good. That's great. Yeah, it's, it's good to see progress and that really sums up research, right? We get some things right, some things are more complex than we think and that's why we continue to invest in this field. Right. I don't know if this is a fair question or not, but we talked about where you saw our field going six years ago. Where do you think we'll be six years from now? What is 2029 going to look like for plant pathology? I have been reading up or seeing the new talents that are there. You know, anytime I go for the APIS meeting that I said with the early career professionals, folks that have just started, like fresh from graduate school, or even the students that are just getting ready to graduate, there's several that is coming up with interdisciplinary training. It's not is that traditional plant pathology is there, but it is interwined with a lot of research areas from other fields, for instance, engineering, and that's where the precision agriculture is coming in. It, it was around since the 1970s, but it's not a field that anyone paid a lot of attention to, unlike what we have today with a lot of the technology that's coming, or the folks that are into developing transgenic cultivars to protect, you know, against several organisms, including fighting system and so on. So I see where students are going to be trained in a lot of interdisciplinary areas alongside plant pathology. Perhaps that's the need of the hour to address a lot of the critical workforce that the industry needs at this time. But I see a lot of potential in that because our students are probably going to be 
very competitive. Um, they're going to be good researchers. They know the best of multiple worlds. And I think that's where the future is for pathology. But that doesn't mean the traditional pathologists are dying. It's just that they're there, but it's probably going to be mostly the background I'm saying. It's just the kind of theory of technology these days, artificial intelligence, but so many other things happening. Yeah, it really is an exciting time. And to your point about that, I don't know, the tension between plant pathology as a discipline unto itself and the opportunities for interdisciplinary work. Um, I had a really uh, enlightening conversation with Professor Jan Leach in, I guess it was episode one of season three of Plantopia, um, where we, we talked on that very uh, topic as well. So um, we'll, we'll invite you back in six years to see how, how you did. <laughs> and uh, um, we'll, we'll ask you uh, what the next six years uh, will look like as well. I'd like to turn now to uh, mentoring, which has been something that you really are very passionate about, and in particular, your support of women and underrepresented groups. Where does this passion come from, and, and how do you think this, this passion is reflected in your approach to, to our science? The find um, came from overseas. I'm a woman, woman of color, and this one article that came out in Nature, the author is uh, Natalia discusses about how academia's culture of old work almost broke the researcher and how she is basically working to undo it. This was a conversation that I often have with not necessarily just women, but also folks from any background. It could be culture, it could be gender, it could be age. Even students come and talk about how old Almington academia be. I haven't gone through the process myself as an assistant professor working towards promotion and tenure. There was a time I remember in my early career, after three years I got started at SD State, I nearly hit the rock bottom because I thought hey, I was overworking myself. I just didn't have time for any activities. Or, you know, I fenced and seen up of me. The folks that collaborated with me, they started reaching out asking, is everything okay besides writing grants and publications and everything? I just couldn't get a very strong handle of myself. And that was the first time I thought I was just overcoming me. And I did try to strike conversation with my then mentor, with my boss at the time, but I just couldn't figure out what was really going on with me. So it took me some time to understand that it's probably an overkill without really thinking as to how I could establish in such a way that I can still make my presence felt in the community, if it's APS community or plant pathology community in general, without actually overcoming. And that's where I thought it, I can share my experience with folks that are going through the same emotional turmoil. Perhaps they will at least get the more support of the understanding okay, they're not all by ourselves and there is a much better effective way of doing it rather than going to the traditional way of just killing in. So that's what led me to mentor, you know, again, women, underrepresented group, anybody who is going through that stress in their life, I decided to go take an extra step and help them out. I think as humans having, you know, we have that civil responsibility, if you were to help each other out, watch out for others. If somebody is having a tough day or, you know, maybe a tough time at their job or whatever. So that's how I got into mentoring, not just faculty members, but also students or anyone that I see who is undergoing stress. Well, uh, Fabina, thank you for sharing that personal story. That's very powerful. And, and living uh, by example, that's so important. Thank you for bringing that to your, your mentoring style. 
Then when I read this particular article from Nature, and this is a very recent one, this was, I found this through Twitter actually. When I read it, it actually just, I felt like I was reading my own biography. You know, having come mm-hmm. from outside the, uh, not knowing the system, education system that US has, which is very different from what India has and the challenges that we went through. But I would want to say when I read that, I'm not reading it as somebody who is coming from outside the US, but it could apply to anybody even within the US, but is going through the same turmoil. Yeah. So this is something I have, well, I recognized for myself, probably it took some time for me to recognize that, but I've been trying to help people out who is going through that challenge. Great. That's wonderful. And, and we'll, we'll post a link to that article at plantopiapodcast.org, uh, the landing page for this particular episode. Continuing on the mentoring theme, very recently, you were awarded a fellowship in the Broadening Participation Program at NDSU. And this, I think, is a year-long fellowship. Uh, what will you be doing during the next year? There were two faculty fellows who were awarded the fellowship at the same time. So it was me and uh, Dr. Mackey, who is our President Biden's team for expanding opportunities for Native Americans when it comes to researching other capacity. So the two of us would be working alongside to develop opportunities to connect NDSU with the tribal institutions in North Dakota. So opening up channels in such a way that they could be part of our research and we could be part of their research project as well, which includes training and perhaps mentoring and it's not just faculty members, but also students. I also uh, proposed about improving the diversity, equity, inclusion resources at NDSU, which we do have several programs already in place, but we wanted to have a one-stop place for a lot of these resources to help faculty members when they write federal grants. And these days, there are federal funding agencies, such as NSF or NIH, actually asking for the DEIA plan, that the Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, Accessibility Plan. And having written a couple of them myself, it can be a challenge sometimes because we need to really know what we want to be able to propose if we have the program initiatives in the universities. So having them listed somewhere out on the NDSU's web page, for instance, actually will help faculty members write a DEIA plan, which is never, perhaps in 20, 20 years ago when these, when we were writing plans, maybe it was not very critical, but these days it's becoming more important. But that's pretty much what I will be accomplishing in, in, in this year as well as the fellowship is confirmed. So to bring in right. people to be part of that DEIA initiative. That's a lot. And we look forward to seeing where you go with it over the next year. And when it comes to uh, work with Indigenous peoples, you've had a long history, both at SDSU and NDSU. Tell us a little bit about what you've done. In 2018, me and few colleagues at our SD State, we developed a USDA, well, it was USDA AFRI funded, but more of a research and extension experience for undergraduates, specifically targeting the students of the private institutions as well as a financially disadvantaged student. And this was funded through the USDA's Education Literacy Initiative, and we called it the FAST REEU. And that was our response to addressing some of the critical issues that we have in the STEM industry when it comes to workforce. The REEU program was a big hit. We uh, did it for four years, including during the COVID time. COVID time, we went kind of limited to virtual mentoring, but otherwise, we had 
students from the trauma institutions in South Dakota come to SDSU. They were mentored in different research labs. We had them pick the choice, like we gave them options as to who was available to mentor. So they chose mentors. I had one student who wanted to work on sunflower diseases and I had him work on an extension fact sheet on sunflower diseases because he mentioned sunflower was an important crop in their reservation. But anytime they saw diseases, they didn't know that this was charcoal rot or this was philopsis or this is rust. They just know that something was happening to the sunflower plant. So that's where my journey started with the tribal institutions. But also through the APS and my graduate students, two separate groups won it twice. So they were awardees of the Natri Education Endowment Award in 2016. So my students then proposed to educate Native American youths in the Rosebud Reservation, South Dakota, on diseases and insect affecting their community garden. Their one way for food security comes through community gardens, so they do have a mass production happening through community gardens as opposed to like a commercial farm that we see otherwise. Just recently, we got an email again from the uh, APS Foundation Committee that my current students at NDSU uh, has also been awarded the Matri Education Endowment Award to educate K-12 students. And these are community schools in the Standing Rock Soil Reservation in North Dakota. So we'll be going out there to teach them all about food safety, how to identify spoiled food. You think, obviously nobody wants to taste it, but at least through seeing if they see mold on strawberries or if they smell something is rotten, how do you identify that the food is spoiled? So that's what my students are going to be doing. So it's it's been a good journey. I like learning different cultures. And this it, indigenous culture is something that always excited me. So, uh, you know, it's a very good opportunity to go there and give back something to the community. But then I'd be looking forward to that. That's very exciting work. And it's wonderful to see that your students are, are following suit as well. Yes, I'm, I'm proud of them. It's, it was, you know, I'm glad that they are able to help me out in what I'm passionate about. So hopefully I'm building some interest in, in them or teaching them that this is also part of life because we see it in our kitchens or dining counters every day, but educating someone on that is important as a pathologist. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So there's one last question I have to ask. And uh, we've talked, of course, about your impacts in research and mentorship, which are, are many. But in addition to those activities, you, of course, teach and you teach in a variety of plant pathology courses. What really caught my eye, though, when I was reviewing your, your CV are classes that you've taught in the Department of Theater Arts. That's not normal for most plant pathologists. Uh, what classes have you been part of in the theater arts? I don't know how many people know that, but I am a trained dancer. I started my dance journey at the age of four. And uh, we go through the Indian language that's called Arinatum. So we give, go through a graduation ceremony, which I did at the age of 10. After having moved to the United States, I began teaching dance. I taught at the NDSU's Wellness Center for a while when I was a graduate student. It was just part of a hobby. But I taught different age group. I mean, kids from like age four all the way up to, I don't know, 50, 60. Folks that just wanted to do it for the sake of doing it, like stress relief physical fitness, or someone who is really extremely passionate about dancing, but has not had a chance to learn dancing, maybe perhaps during their younger days, but, you know, decided to take some time out for themselves as they grew older. So I did a lot of shows in Fargo, uh, mostly charity work, like 
churches, Make-A-Wish Foundation, Cancer Awareness, for so many of that sort. So any proceeds that came out of the dance shows pretty much went to those organizations. At South Dakota State, you know, we do have international student population, including faculty members, staff, and the university makes a lot of effort to expose people from different cultures. And that's how I got picked up to teach Indian classical dance in a sophomore class called multicultural dance. And I think there were 20, 25 students. I, I have to say that when I started teaching about dance, it just stuck in my head. It's so easy to teach you pathology because you can go blindly talking about a particular organism for hours and hours and you hardly have to even read through the slide. But when it came to dance, it was a little bit of a challenge because it's not something that I do every day. So I found myself actually being more nervous teaching uh, in like a dance class, like which is, you know, at a sophomore level. And so I took my time to basically even review, prepare it. I don't know if I've worked so hard in uh, preparing for any other lecture when it came to pantheology. But it was an interesting experience. I taught them different styles of dance. I also did a demonstration. I had folks that told me that they were interested in doing part of the studio when I would come and teach them Indian dance on a weekly basis because they wanted to learn something outside the regular jazz, hip-hop, ballet style of dancing. So that kind of touched my heart that I saw students that were actually open to understanding another culture that they may not be exposed to, especially in Brookings, South Dakota. So that was my uh, dance stand. I really enjoyed teaching that. And I will be looking for opportunities here for now that I'm back to Fargo's. That's really exciting. And I can say without a doubt that teaching a dance class would make me a lot more nervous than teaching a plant path class, since I know literally nothing about dance. Or maybe someday you and I can, uh, <laughs> uh, can talk about that. Fabina, it's been really fun having this conversation, getting to know you a bit better. Do you have any parting thoughts for our listeners? Yeah, you know, I wanted to share the best advice I have gotten in my life, and that is, uh, I, I hear it from everybody, but I think it's applicable to anyone, anywhere in the world. It should just be yourself. You know, if you, whether it's just promotion tenure, whether it is a competition, whether it is just building a life, there is nobody but me that knows me better. And so what I think is best for me is what I need to be doing. And I don't have to be watching around to see who is doing what and then put up stress accordingly. So that's something I learned very late in life. It's always important to just be ourselves and do what makes us happy rather than what others need us to do. So that's my parting advice. That's great advice for plant pathology and, and for life. So Fabina, thank you so much again for being here on Plantopia. Thank you so much for having me again. It was nice to talk something up all week. That's I really enjoyed this conversation. So did I. Uh, so we just heard from Fabina Matthew. Fabina is an associate professor of plant pathology at North Dakota State University. And this is the Plantopia podcast. I'm Jim Bradeen, and I'm looking forward to our next conversation. Thanks for listening.